you can recognize a cat image, you can generate a cat image. And what we're seeing is these systems can generate blog posts, um, videos, even the sound of your voice, right? That's, that's a danger. And the EU rules also seek to restrict that, force companies to identify um, you know, what they call deep fakes. And these, these you know, false images and texts are created by machines. Hi, I'm Eric Schwartzman, author of The Digital Pivot, and this is the Earned Media Podcast. Our guest today is Cade Metz. He is a technology correspondent with the New York Times covering artificial intelligence, driverless cars, robotics, virtual reality, and other emerging tech. Before that, he was a writer at Wired Magazine. His new book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks, who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world, was just released by Penguin. And Ashley Vance, the New York Times bestselling author of Elon Musk, Tesla, SpaceX, and the Quest for the Fantastic Future, calls it one of the most surprising and important stories of our time. Cade, welcome to the Earn Media Podcast. Glad to be here. Now, today, the state of artificial intelligence in three acts. We'll start with a discussion about what AI is and what it isn't. We'll talk about what it's really capable of and who's most likely to benefit from it. Then we'll talk about the ethical challenges and dangers that AI poses and how likely they are to come to pass. We'll wrap it up with a discussion about the impact of public relations and earned media on the techno technological development of AI with New York Times reporter Cade Metz, author of the new book, Genius Makers, after this. Act one. These days, it seems like every software product or app maker out there is promoting themselves as having artificial intelligence. The term has become so overused and widely misunderstood. But what really is artificial intelligence anyways? I'm here with New York Times reporter Cade Metz, who has a new book out on artificial intelligence called Genius Makers, the mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. Uh, he's been tracking developments in this space for over a decade. Cade, why do you think Ashley Vance called Genius Makers surprising? What, what surprised him about the book? Well, it's about an idea, a particular idea in artificial intelligence that dates back to the 50s that even people in the field were skeptical of and thought would never work. And then around 2012, it started to work. It's called a neural network. And we can talk about what that is. But basically, this single idea started to work um, about a decade ago, and it is now moving into so many of the technologies we use on a daily basis and changing the way we use our phones, the way we use robotics, what those um, services and systems are capable of. It's something that was surprising even to the makers of the technology, and that's what the book is about. Why now? I mean, you've been, you've been, you've been tracking artificial intelligence for 10 years. Why did you write this book now? Well, because that change had really happened. It's a very real change. I like that you 
you talk about AI being this term that, that is overused and applied to everything. It's confusing for the layperson what is and what is not AI. What I wanted to do with this book is push all that aside and show people what has really happened, the way this single idea has actually changed things. And I wanted to do it through the people who built this technology. Any good story is about people. And that's what this book seeks to do. It, it seeks to go back to the roots of this idea, which goes all the way back to the 40s and the 50s, uh, and follow that up to the, to the present day through these key moments around 2010, 2012 in particular, where that idea started to work, um, and follow it up to the present day and look at how it might change our world in the years to come as well. So, so the term artificial intelligence really is as broad as the term medicine, right? I mean, what is artificial intelligence? It is, or maybe it's even broader. Like it's, it's, it's so difficult to define. What I often say is that the original sin of the founders of this field, the people who gathered at Dartmouth University in the late 50s and coined the term, their original sin was that they called it artificial intelligence. It's, it's immediately misleading right? It's certainly misleading the 50s uh, when we were nowhere close to having a system that behaved like the brain. And it's still misleading today because we don't really have a system that behaves like a brain. We, we and, I, and I often underline this for people, we don't know how the brain works. Even now, we don't understand the brain. So recreating the brain is from the get-go quite a task. We can mimic the brain in very specific ways, limited ways, but we can't mimic everything that it can do today. Um, that term, though, implies that we can. It implies that we have systems that mimic the brain in extravagant ways, right? It brings up these visions um, that are lodged in the back of our mind from uh, science fiction movies and books, right? We, we hear the term, we imagine how in 2001, at least subconsciously, or you know, so many other tropes um, from science fiction. And that's not exactly what's happening. We're, we're moving in that direction in some ways, and you can see sort of sparks of that, but we're a long way um, from, from that as a reality. So, so what is artificial intelligence? When someone says, oh, my software has artificial intelligence or my app has artificial intelligence, what claim are they making? Well, I don't want to speak for them. They're making all sorts of claims that I that in many cases are bogus. But let's let's do this. Let's talk about you know a subset of that and and talk about what is actually working. Okay, let's talk about that idea that I mentioned, the idea of a neural network that is central to so much of what has happened over the past decade, and it's very easy to understand. A neural network is a mathematical system that can learn skills by analyzing vast amounts of data. So the example I always give is, is if you have thousands of cat photos, for instance, you can feed those into a neural network and it analyzes those photos. It looks for the patterns that define what a cat looks like. And in that way, it learns to recognize a cat. That's what drives the system on Facebook, for instance, that can recognize faces in photos. It's what drives the speech recognition service on your iPhone. When you speak commands to Siri and Siri can recognize the words you say, that's also a neural network. It's trained in the same way. 
You feed thousands of hours of spoken words into a neural, net, neural network, and that's usually old tech support calls of all things. It analyzes those spoken words, looks for the patterns that identify particular words, and it learns to recognize those words. That basic idea is used in so many other things that we can go into during this conversation. But the reason that is important is that the system is learning the task. It can learn the task by analyzing the data much quicker than engineers could ever tell the system how to, how to complete that, that task. It can learn it as opposed to engineers line, line of code by line of code, rule by rule, defining what a cat looks like. That, that is too difficult for engineers to do. Even a cat photo is so complex. You can never you know, define all the possibilities. Um, all the different breeds of cat, all the different angles you can shoot a photo from, um, you know, all the imperfections in the photo and, and the movement, you can never define all the possibilities. But if you give a neural network all those photos and let it do the analysis, look for those patterns, it can learn that skill on its own. That's a powerful thing. And that's- So, so, so is a neural network machine learning, is it the same thing? It's a subset of machine learning. Machine learning is another general term. It just it means a machine that can learn a skill um, by analyzing data. But this is something very different from the machine learning we've had in the past because it learns from such large amounts of data. And it learns these very, very powerful and specific skills. Um, it learns from more data than we humans could ever wrap our heads around, right? We're not seeing all those patterns in the cat photos. Um, it looks for and finds those patterns on its own and learns that skill um, largely on its own. It's a powerful thing. But, but you, it's much easier to teach a machine to do one thing over and over again than it is to get a machine to think like a human, right? So, so what is this concept of AGI? What is artificial general intelligence? Well, people have have dreams of taking this idea and expanding it to the point um, where you have a giant neural network that it could essentially analyze everything that we would experience in our daily lives. And, and, and somehow from that build a system that can do it all, right? So think of it this way. Now, I'm just speaking in broad strokes here, but if you could model the world digitally, and then you could have a neural network analyze all the patterns in that model of the world, um, people believe you could reach a system that could that could do anything. I'm, I'm speaking broadly, but that's that's the basic idea here. We're still a long way from that. There are two labs in the world who say that their stated mission is to build AGI, a, a system, anything the brain can do. That's DeepMind in London, OpenAI in San Francisco, but they don't necessarily know how to get there. That's going to take a lot of doing. Right now, we have systems that work in very specific ways, speech recognition, image recognition. You're starting to have um, systems along these lines that can analyze vast amounts of, of written text, so digital books, Wikipedia articles, other content from the internet, and learn how we humans piece English together in other languages. And it can better learn to not only understand the word, recognize the words you're saying, but understand those words, actually understand what you're asking for. Um, for instance, if you're talking to a machine and then respond to it, we're seeing a lot of progress there. See a lot of progress with robotics. 
You know, if you can recognize a cat in an image, that can help a robot learn uh, to recognize a cat, learn to recognize other things around it and respond to it. We're seeing progress there as well. So there are these particular areas where we've seen a lot of gain over the past 10 years and we'll continue to see gain. But that doesn't necessarily mean uh, we're going to see a, a brain, uh, a machine like a machine that can do anything the human brain can do anytime soon. Right. Like it's one thing to create a robot that can sort uh, products in an Amazon warehouse and pack an order. It's another thing to create a robot that could have this conversation with me. So you, when you talk about uh, these two labs in London and in San Francisco, which you write about in the book, who are you know focused on artificial achieving artificial general intelligence, you use the word dream. You use the word hope almost as though it requires blind faith. And in the, in the chapter on that in the book, it's titled Religion. So, so why is the AGI argument a religious argument? Well, like with any new and ambitious technology, you need belief in order to build it, okay? If you're going to build Facebook, you've got to believe that you can do it. If you're going to raise the money and attract the talent, you better believe it. This is that same attitude, but applied to a just enormously more complex um, and ambitious project. Um, so if you're going to build AGI, you better believe that you can do it. And a lot of people really do have that belief. But that doesn't mean that you're going to do it um, you know, as soon as some people say or may think, right? It's believing is one thing and actually doing it is, is another. And what you do see is that there are people in the field who really believe this is going to happen. You see other people who are just as bright, just as accomplished, backed by just as much money, who think that idea is bunk and that's not going to happen anytime soon. You get a, a real disagreement here. And it is, it is almost like a religion um, where, where you have this kind of spectrum of belief even where, um, you know, there, there are various places along that spectrum where the belief um, you know, rises and falls. So in his book, your colleague, uh, Thomas Friedman, in his book uh, several years ago, thank you for being late, wrote an entire chapter on Moore's Law. And Moore's Law basically says that microprocessors double in capacity every 18 months and they also half in price. So that's exponential growth from a processing power standpoint. Yet, you know, we hear from the folks, uh, you know, in crypto that uh, the ledgers take incredible amount of processing power to uh, maintain. We hear from you here and in your book, you know, about the incredibly uh, intensive process, computer processing demands to satisfy AI. But does Moore's law somehow ensure that AGI is right around the corner? Some people argue that it does, that as we get a greater and greater processing power, that we're on a path to that. I mean, generally speaking, of course, the, the way this works today is the more processing power that you have, the more data you can analyze and, and the faster that, that that idea that I've been talking about can progress. And that's what you're seeing now is you're seeing these very large companies 
um, apply more and more processing power uh, to the problem and you, and you see it improve. Um, you know, a really good example that um, I've been writing about recently at the Times is a project called GPT-3, uh, which came out of OpenAI, the lab in San Francisco founded in part by Elon Musk. It's, a, it's that giant neural network that analyzes all that digital text. So all those books and Wikipedia articles and other content from the internet, it spends months analyzing um, all that data. And we're talking about hundreds of, of chips in a giant data center that crunch through all that, all that data. Um, what we have seen with projects like that is that the more computing power uh, you throw at the problem, the better uh, the technology gets. Uh, so there, there is some truth to that. That doesn't mean that we can scale this all the way up to AGI um, you know, at the same rate. Um, you know, we're already starting to see limits to that particular idea. Um, we're running out of juice when it comes to analyzing digital text in that way. Um, will it work as we um, acquire more data and model the world the way that I was talking about? We'll, we'll have to see. But, but, you know, you do see a growth curve there. Um, talk to us for a minute about whether or not we should be worried that AI is going to take our jobs. Like, obviously, I understand if you're sorting products in a warehouse, AI has already taken your job. But for those of us who are knowledge workers, um, should knowledge workers be concerned that AI is going to take their jobs or is it already taking their jobs? Well, what, when people talk about concern over jobs going away, the real worry there is whether or not it's going to take them away in the short term, right? Before you, ha you have time to train the population for new jobs. We haven't really seen that. And actually, the warehouse problem you talk about is, can be illustrative here. So yes, we now have robots that can help in the warehouse, you know, help sort through all the goods that come into an Amazon warehouse and need to go back out. In the past, it's always humans that had to sort through those bins of random stuff. We're starting to see systems that can do that. Um, now, you might say, well, that's going to take away all those jobs. But if you step back and you look at the situation, what we're seeing, particularly amidst this pandemic, is that we're relying more and more on Amazon. Amazon needs to grow these warehouses. Um, it's having trouble staffing those jobs in a lot of places. I've been to these warehouses you know, in areas where they have trouble getting the human labor um, as that market grows. So as the robots come in, um, you know, they're not necessarily replacing people. Um, you know, in some cases they are, but we need to think about this you know, in a broader sense. Another good example is the trucking industry. We're, we're on a path towards self-driving trucks. And you can say, well, that's going to take away jobs for truckers. Uh, and, and in the long term, it certainly will. But at the same time, the number of truckers um, is on the decline, right? That, that population is aging as well. Um, and, and so what we're not seeing is vast amounts of jobs suddenly uh, go away. And what we're also seeing, and I want to underline this too, in all these areas, the technology is still flawed. 
in many cases, it can't necessarily replace a human or it needs to be used alongside a human. And so even, you know, in these areas where it's working well, you're not necessarily seeing a huge uh, threat. Um, you know, we now have these systems that can generate language on their own, like GPT-3. That's one of the things it can do. It can generate blog posts and articles. And in some ways, they're remarkable. Um, but it can't do it every time as well as a human reporter can, a human writer. Um, we still need people to, um, uh, to do that sort of thing. Uh, so, you know, in the long term, machines are going to do more and more. But that kind of moment when every, all the jobs vanish, we're not seeing that yet. We're not seeing evidence that will happen anytime soon. Um, in his book, AI Superpowers, uh, Kai-Fu Lee published this uh, risk of replacement for cognitive labor graph. And uh, in the right, he says, you know, he calls it the safe zone, the upper right. And the jobs he says that are safe from uh, being replaced are a concierge, uh, a social worker, a psychiatrist, a PR director, a criminal defense attorney, a CEO. And then the danger zone jobs, uh, he lists our customer service rep, radiologist, personal tax preparer, insurance adjuster, consumer loan underwriter, telemarketer. Um, any thoughts on this? Have you seen this? Did you give this some thought as you're writing your book? Do you agree, disagree? Yeah, I mean, generally speaking, that that sounds about right. You know, that those that second group, that those are the areas where machines are getting getting better, right? We're, we're seeing machines that can better understand language and better respond to it. And that fits into so many of, of the categories you talked about. Machines already can deal, um, you know, in simpler ways with Excel spreadsheets um, and, and other, you know, simple forms of technology, and they can replace humans who have done that in the past. We're seeing, seeing that. You mentioned Radiologists. So that's that's one place where these neural networks are really powerful. They can they can look at medical scans, whether they're X-rays or CT scans, eye scans, and look for signs of disease and identify those signs. Um, that can help do the job of a radiologist and and other doctors. But even then, you know, countries, um, hospitals have been slow to adopt that technology because we want to make sure they do the job well. Typically they're used in tandem uh, with a human and for the you know, foreseeable future, they, that's the way it's going to work. Where they can really be powerful today is where you may not, in countries where you may not have a doctor on hand and the machine can be you know, the first line of defense, so to speak. You identify a possible problem you alert the doctor. So in the long run, in the distance, Kai-Fu Lee is right on all those areas. Um, but that doesn't mean all those jobs are just suddenly going to vanish tomorrow. The ethical challenges and existential threat of artificial intelligence with Cade Metz, author of Genius Makers, after this. Cade, is the public perception of what's possible with AI real? Or overblown? Well, the answer to a lot of these questions is a little bit of a little bit of each, right? Um, 
it is overblown, especially, you know, as people like Elon Musk, um, you know, stood on their soapboxes and said that we're on a path towards AI destroying humankind if we're not careful. Um, that gives a false impression. It makes it seem like that risk is close. But there are areas today where we're already seeing issues um, uh, you know, with the technology and areas of real concern. You know, these systems do learn from enormous amounts of data. And, and that means that we're not always going to see everything they learn, realize um, where they might learn things that we don't want them to. You know, the prime example right now is these systems can be biased. They can be biased against women and people of color. If you give them data that's biased, they are going to exhibit that bias. Uh, these systems like GPT-3 that train on all this text from the internet, the internet for anyone who's used it, right? Is, you know, it, anyone who's used the internet knows the internet can be biased. Um, it includes hate speech. It includes language that you don't necessarily want your machines to learn. But the way these systems work, they do learn those flaws, um, as well as you know, the, the positive aspects that you might want them to learn. Um, that's an area of concern. Um, another, I mean, there are so many other areas we could discuss. Uh, surveillance, these technologies are particularly powerful when it comes to surveillance in China. This type of technology is already used to identify an ethnic minority. Um, that's an, a, a real area of concern for a lot of people across the globe. Autonomous weapons, you know, we're on a path towards that sort of thing. Um, you know, if a, if a self-driving car or robot can recognize the world around it, so can a self-flying drone. Um, that can be a way of targeting things on the battlefield. Um, you know, these are things that we need to start thinking about now. Uh, separately from this idea that AI will somehow turn on humanity and destroy the world. You know, the uh, section of the book on autonomous warfare is just fascinating. Talk to us about Project Maven. What is that? Well, it's what I was just talking about, right? It's an effort by the Department of Defense uh, to build a system that can identify objects in drone footage. So identify cars and people or, uh, or buildings. Uh, that's a way of doing surveillance uh, for the military, but it's also a path towards autonomous weapons. That same technology uh, can be used on a system that has a weapon on it. There were many tech companies who started working on this project with the DOD. Uh, what you see in the book is that the people who specialized in this technology, they were mostly academics. They went to work for these giant tech companies uh, about 10 years ago when the technology took off. And so that's where the DOD went for, for the expertise, right? These technologies were being built inside the Googles and the Microsofts and the Amazons. And those are the companies that went to work on this, this project. At Google, uh, there was an issue. Uh, several, um, many Google employees um, were upset by the fact that Google was working on such a project uh, and protested uh, the effort. Google ended up essentially pulling out of that project and, um, and left it to other companies. Um, it's an example of where this concern can pop up, um, even inside the companies building the technology. 
And where are we today with drone warfare? I mean, do killer robots exist? Well, we're not there yet, um, but we're on that path. What we now have, I just did a piece in the Times about various companies that are building self-flying drones. And these, these drones are very good at flying on their own um, and, and identifying uh, various objects around them. The companies building this technology are willing, many of them say, to put a weapon on it. So they see this as a path towards that type of thing, what people call um, killer robots. What they mean is an autonomous weapon. Um, we're not there yet. The, the DOD, I spent a lot of time talking to people inside the DOD as well. It's something that they are working towards, um, uh, but we're, we're not quite there yet. What we do need to do, though, is as we work in that direction, think about the consequences. Do, when do we want a human in the loop um, to make sure these are used in ethical ways? If I remember correctly, at one point in the book, there is a Shanahan who is a military official who's quoted as saying, you know, we don't think any um, defense systems moving forward should be without an AI component. Absolutely. I mean, but again, that, that term can mean a lot of things. Um, you know, these are powerful technologies. It, it's no surprise that the military want to use them. That doesn't mean we're going to put, you know, systems out into the field that are making all the decisions. We don't have machines that can do that yet. Um, you very much need human help. And a lot of the thinking um, is that that will continue to be the case. Um, you will continue to have a mix of machine and human. Um, but, you know, we do need to keep an eye on how this progresses. You, you talk about how we need to start thinking about these things now. Are there any proposals for regulating AI that have promise? There are. It's, it's a difficult thing when it comes to regulation. The technology is improving at such a rapid rate. You know, the problem is often you get the regulations out and then the technology changes. We just had last week uh, proposed rules for uh, regulating AI from the European Union. And it's, they're very broad. They look at uh, restricting face recognition in public places. Uh, they look at uh, restricting the way these systems can generate disinformation. We've talked a lot about how these systems can recognize sounds, uh, images, or, or text. They can also, if you flip them upside down, so to speak, they can also generate all those things, right? If you can recognize a cat image, you can generate a cat image. And what we're seeing is these systems can generate blog posts, um, videos, even the sound of your voice, right? That's, that's a danger. And the EU rules also seek to restrict that, force companies to identify um, you know, what they call deep fakes. And these, these you know, false images and texts are created by machines. Um, that's an area of concern. Um, there are other areas where not just the EU, but other governments um, are, are starting to think about um, how, how we can regulate these things. But it's, it, is, it is very difficult. I do want to say that. Um, you know, if the EU cracks down in some ways, that's not, you know, that's not going to 
prevent other countries, uh, companies in other parts of the world from doing similar things. There are some of these issues where we need to think about this globally. Uh, autonomous weapons is the best idea, right? If you crack down on that in one country, that doesn't mean it's not going to happen elsewhere. Um, what do you think of Shoshana Zuboff's recommendation that it's really data collection at the top of the funnel that needs to be regulated? Well, I mean, we've spent this podcast talking about the fact that these systems learn from data. It's fundamental. Um, and you see this um, in, in so many ways. In the book, um, you know, you see this pop up time and again, where the, these efforts to to collect the data, and it's the big internet companies that that have that, right? That's the real currency. And that's how they're able to build so many of these systems. Um, you and I contribute to that on a daily basis just by uploading all this data to these services. Or another example I often give, anyone who's ever used an internet service and it wants to make sure you're not a robot, right? And it gives you what's called a CAPTCHA, which is just a test to make sure you're a human. Um, odds are anyone listening to this, watching this, has gotten that caption that says, show me um, you know, which pictures that, that, that I'm putting on the screen that include a car or a stop sign. And we do that. What you're doing is you're identifying the photos that Google can use for a neural network to train its self-driving cars. That is, that's what you're doing there. You're telling um, Google here are the cars, here are the stop signs. Later, that gets fed into these neural networks that can learn to recognize those objects. So on a daily basis, we're contributing uh, to these systems. It's using our data um, and our brain power um, in, in building these, these increasingly powerful systems. Kate, you write about how Google invested in AI before Microsoft for many reasons. But you mentioned that Microsoft's more mature status as an enterprise may have held them back. Um, will Google and Facebook reap the rewards of AI, or is there a whole new class of startups out there who will somehow inherit the mantle and displace them? It's hard to see startups displacing them at this point. Uh, they are in such a powerful, powerful position. You know, the, the currency here is not just the data, it's the processing power, as we talked about. Those are two things that the big companies have. Uh, they also have the money. That means they have the talent. They have a real advantage right now. There, there are cases where startups can succeed. Those, those drone startups I, I talked about are, are a good example. They're pushing forward in that area, looking to work uh, with the government in that area. Um, but when it comes to really pushing uh, these types of systems we've been discussing, the big companies have an advantage. What about China? Are we is the U.S. in an AI arms race with China? In a way, it is. I think this is another thing that's often misunderstood. But uh, as you see from you know the opening scene in my book, from the moment this idea started to take off, a Chinese company was there, Baidu. Uh, there. They were there alongside Google and Microsoft. And you see this as a real area of interest in, in China. And as, as Kai-Fu Lee uh, has mentioned in others, China can potentially have an advantage in the long run because it has such a large population. Right? That, that generates more data. 
uh, in this day and age, um, in the internet age. In theory, they can, they can produce a greater number of researchers. Um, that's also important. Um, but the landscape is more complicated than people might expect, right? In the past, you know, new technologies were built inside government labs, right, and, and held secret. Um, the way this technology is developed is a little different. For various reasons, as you see in the book, the big technology companies openly publish their latest results. You know, it's academics who believed in this idea, who came into these big companies, they wanted to keep publishing. The Googles and the Facebooks keep doing that. What that means is that the latest ideas are available to anyone on earth, including rivals of the US. So um, you can't necessarily crack down on, on your exports uh, to certain countries uh, to bottle the technology up. At the same time, and this, this can be hard for people to understand as well, the U.S. really relies on immigrant talent in this area, including Chinese talent. You talked about Project Maven. There were Chinese nationals who worked on that project uh, at Google. Um, you know, people should realize uh, how important immigrant talent is uh, to US, the U.S., particularly in the science and technology fields. So you can't just shut down your borders uh, to foreign uh, researchers, right? You, you'd end up shooting yourself in the foot. So there's a, there's a careful balance uh, that goes on, on here when it comes to competition. The concern here in the U.S. is, is that the U.S. is not keeping pace uh, in the, or won't keep pace in the long run with its rivals, that so much of the talent and, um, and the progress is inside these big private companies, excuse me, public companies, um, and not in government labs, not in universities, and they want to try to correct, correct that balance. Um, you know, they don't want Google, say, driving everything because Google's aims and ambitions might not align with the U.S. government, right? Google is a company headquartered in the U.S., but it's a, it's a multinational company, and it's driven by other motives. And part of the concern is that, you know, the progress is happening there and not happening, happening in government. Um, in China, the situation is completely different, right? You have a synergy between government and industry that you don't necessarily have here. Can AI solve the fake news problem and the role of PR in technological development with Cade Metz after this? We're back with Cade Metz. He's the author of a new book, Genius Makers, The Mavericks Who Brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the World. Cade, talk to us about Apple for a moment, because they're pushing the AI envelope as well with Siri, right? Absolutely. Um, what people may not realize, though, is that Siri debuted with a different technology. You know, it didn't work as well as it, as it does today. The neural network idea came in after Siri's introduction. And what you see today is a, is a more powerful version of that. Um, Apple uh, comes at this a, a little differently than other companies. You know, there was, there was this real race for talent between Google and, and Facebook and some of these other very big players. Apple approached it a little, little differently. Um, they're not as, as concerned um, with jumping on the big names as maybe uh, some of these, these other companies. 
but it has started to hire some really important people of late. Uh, John Giandrea oversees their work now. He once was head of AI at Google. Ian Goodfellow, another key player you know, and character in my book, uh, is now at Apple. Uh, they see where all this is going, and they certainly uh, want to roll this technology into so, so much of what they're doing. Um, but you're right, Siri is at the heart of that, right? The areas where this technology is starting to work are areas that can benefit a digital assistant like that. And, and can AI solve the fake news problem? No, so you need to think about, people need to think about this a little differently. I know that Mark Zuckerberg has gotten you know, before Congress and said such things. Identifying fake news is difficult even for a human, right? It's a judgment call. You and I may disagree on what is and what is not fake news, so to speak. And you see this all the time. Um, if we as humans can't agree on what is and what is not fake news or what is or what is not hate speech, how can you build a machine that can do that? It's a difficult problem, even if you're talking about humans doing this. And, and right now it is humans who make those judgment calls and, and those judgment calls get disputed. Um, the other thing is that these same systems that can recognize, say, fake news can also generate it, right? I talked about that, that if you can identify what a cat looks like, you can generate an image of a, of a cat. And that's what we're seeing too, is these systems that can generate fake images and, and, fake, and fake videos. So on the one hand, it can help solve the problem. On the other hand, it's creating the problem. It's another arms race. Um, you know, th this is a real area of concern that we're pushing towards a point where the systems can generate fake news at a scale that humans never could, right? Um, if, they, if they can do it as well as humans, then you, know, you can do it much better than humans just because machines can do this um, at a much higher volume. That's when it gets really scary. You know, we're all looking at uh, these news feeds all day. And obviously, you know, that takes the concept of if it bleeds, it leads uh, to a whole new level, you know. And, and as a result, the news has become more sensationalized than ever. Um, and you talk about, you know, how the media has overblown the promise of AI. But, you know, are incremental technology gains enough of a scoop to garner coverage in this age of sensationalized news media? Or are, are, are reporters and journalists really being forced to gin up, you know, their stories and make them seem as, as you know, scoop worthy as possible just to get cover, just to get them printed? Well, I mean, obviously there's, there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of the coverage in this area is not that great, but I mean, I can only speak for myself and my colleagues at the Times. You know, we're, we're looking to tell people the reality here and what is really happening and not gin things up as, as you say, um, it can be easy to do and, and to get attention to your story by ginning things up, but that's not my aim. It's not the aim of the times. Um, you know, I'm not going to deny that that doesn't go on elsewhere. Um, but, you know, I think that people need to, to, to realize that there are, there are news outlets that, that are, they're certainly working hard 
um, to tell you the reality and not just the hype. Who are some of the news media outlets that you read, that you pay attention to, that you appreciate? Well, um, you know, I read my colleagues at the Times. Um, you know, there are certain people who I, who I like in this area um, at the Wall Street Journal. Um, there are some talented people uh, at Wired, where I used to work. Um, you know, it's a tricky thing to cover. Uh, you, you really, you have to understand it at a deep level, but then be able to relate that to the layperson. Uh, so you need those two skills. Uh, you have to use different parts of your brain. You need to understand what's really going on, but then you need to, to step back from that and explain to people at a level that anyone can understand what's happening. You know, in the book, you, you write about public relations and how a lot of the AI organizations and individuals in the space used PR uh, for their, for their event, to their advantage in some way. How, is there any sort of generalization or general statement you can make about how PR benefits organizations that are developing AI? Well, you know, we talked about, you know, being the call, this term that gets thrown around a lot. You know, if you just apply that term to whatever you're building, um, you know, that might be able to help you. Um, but it's, a you know, as you look at what, what plays out into the book, it's, it shows you in some ways how Silicon Valley works in general. Silicon Valley is often built on that sort of hype. You know, if you want to attract the talent you need to build something, uh, if you want to attract the money, uh, you do need to have that belief and you need to, to voice that belief and tell people um, that your technology is around the corner. That's how you attract uh, the money and, and the talent. And you see that in the book, even with these incredibly ambitious projects. Um, you know, sometimes it's conscious, sometimes it's unconscious, um, but that's, that's definitely part of what goes on here is that people overpromise, And um, some people may know they're doing that. Some people may not. Um, some people may, may see, you know, explicitly the power of that uh, or they may not, but it's happening. Right. That's a that's a very real phenomenon, which I think you can see in the book. Kate, you write OpenAI said to the press that it was too dangerous to be released. Was that a PR stunt? And if it was, what were they hoping to gain? Well, I mean, I, I don't know if it's a PR stunt or not. Um, you, know, you can never get inside someone's head. But um, a lot of people accused them of that. And th that is another phenomenon in this world that, that is counterintuitive. Um, that if you say something is, is dangerous, it, it makes it seem more powerful than it is, right? If you say it's, it's dangerous when it's not necessarily, it makes it seem uh, more powerful as well. And you know, there's a chapter in the book called Anti-Hype, when you know, Elon Musk comes into the picture and he's telling the world that this technology is dangerous, one of the effects of that is that people assume it's more powerful than it is. And that can be kind of this strange, you know, inverted PR tool. Um, again, who knows how conscious that is? So there's this great scene in the book where Musk and Mark Zuckerberg sit down to dinner and even the people at dinner aren't sure what Musk is really thinking. What are his aims here when he says that AI is going to, 
you know, achieve human levels and potentially turn on us. Um, they're not sure what, whether or not he really believes that. Um, that but that's, you know, it's something that, you know, we're all um, going to struggle to really know, you know, what people's real beliefs are. Um, but uh, that, that sort of strange, you know, unexpected um, PR phenomenon uh, is real. It, it, uh, it has played out time and again, and you see that in the book. You, you quoted Musk as saying, uh, we're headed towards an existential threat or civilization ending. Obviously, you know, we're not in his head. We don't know what he meant. But I mean, you spent a lot of time thinking about it. Do, do you have a sort of gut feel about, you know, what what he's trying to do? Can you explain that thinking in any way or unpack where he's going with that? Well, um, you know, again, this is tied to this AGI idea that, you know, that we're working towards a system that can do anything the human brain can do, but be backed by, you know, enormous amounts of processing power. Um, you know, there is this, there is this fear that once it is, it is more powerful than we are, that it will turn on us, that we, we will, you know, we will build these systems, um, without um, realizing all the unintended consequences. They will learn things uh, that we don't want them to learn, that they will be motivated to do one thing. And we won't see sort of the related motivation um, that's built in there. Um, a lot of people, you know, do, you know, it's not too strong a word to say scoff at that idea. You know, people, you know, who were at that dinner with Elon Musk, who do scoff at that idea that we're, that that's not something we need to worry about uh, today. Um, but, you know, it's something that a lot of people in the field um, feel differently about and, and, and do sort of voice many of the same uh, fears and concerns that, that Musk does. Um, again, you can't get inside your head, but there are a lot of people who, who see that. So, you know, obviously, you know, for Global News, the New York Times is a gold standard brand for tech news. Wired Magazine is a, is a gold standard brand. Could you have written this book and gotten the same level of access if you weren't a Wired Magazine or New York Times reporter? Um, you know, probably not. Um, that doesn't mean it's easy. Uh, it's, um, it's years of talking to people getting a little piece of information and taking that little piece of information to another person, seeing if they can build on it. Um, you know, as you build on it, going back to the first person, uh, it's, it's a hard thing to do, particularly when you're writing about characters that are inside these very big companies where it can be harder to get them to talk. Um, you know, it does help to have the New York times name behind you, but it also helps to have a, a track record, um, of stories and, and relationships. Um, so it probably helps some to have those names behind me. Um, but make no mistake, it's, it's, it's a hard, hard job, um, on a daily basis at the times. It's certainly hard to build a book like that. Kate Metz, author of the new book, Genius Makers, the Mavericks who brought AI to Google, Facebook, and the world. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.
For more on how you can earn influence through Earn Media, get the Digital Pivot audiobook at digitalpivotbook.com.